This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so just enjoy the show. Hello. Hey, John. Hey, Dan Benjamin. If you say the same thing at the same moment as somebody else, do you say, Jinx, you owe me a Coke? Oh, the Coke part? No. Uh, but uh, yes, I used to do that when I was younger. You would say, Jinx. Jinx, yeah. But you not, wouldn't say, Jinx, you owe me a Coke? No, I, I wish I had known that. Oh, Dan, you left a lot of free Coke <laughs> lying on the table. <laughs> Seriously. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Is that, I mean, that <laughs> might be a regionalism. But, but uh, yeah, you would, I mean, I got a lot of Cokes out of that until, until people got wise and they realized they didn't have to buy you a Coke. Well, I had, I have compiled, this is a while ago, but I have a list of, of things I wanted to run down with you yeah. that each in and of itself, depending on your answer here, could become an entire future uh, episode topic or potentially its own spinoff show. Aha. So I'm just going to run run these down. These are, I compiled a list of conspiracy theories. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of get, get your way in on them and you could say yes or no or, you know, yes with an explanation. But, okay. You know. <laughs> I'm almost certain there's going to be an explanation unless I <laughs> have never heard of the conspiracy theory. Okay. Uh, and and some of these actually fall outside. I should clarify: some fall outside of conspiracy into just uh, could could it be? I see. Okay, Bigfoot. You know, I grew up with Bigfoot being yeah. in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Bigfoot was a very real possibility here. Yes. Um, my and- se- I, before you answer, my seven year old who's still pretty obsessed with Bigfoot will ask me when I tell him I'm going on a trip, are you going to where Bigfoot is? Mm-hmm. And, and I that was, usually means up here in the Pacific Northwest. Right. So I'll say, I'll say, no, I haven't been there yet. And so when I tell, Oh, what did, what did you do at school today? Nothing. what did you do at work today? I recorded a show with John and he'll say, is he the one where Bigfoot is? And I'll say, yes. Mm-hmm. So this is I an important am. answer. And for whatever reason, when I was growing up, I felt like Montlake Terrace in Washington was sort of the beginning of Bigfoot's territory. <laughs> uh, Mont- Montlake Terrace is not, it's just a, um, it's just a suburb. It's not particularly any closer to Bigfoot. I mean, but but compared to where I lived, it seemed like Montlake Terrace was was uh, was turf was Bigfoot turf, and um, so Bigfoot super duper duper real to me for a long time. Yeah, and then I, you know, I felt like yeah that uh, that that it, it was so implausible. That Bigfoot would continue to exist in the world, in the actual world, yeah, and escape, truly escape notice, right? Um, but then I read a book, a very interesting and fun book called "The Long Walk," um, and. There's also a book called The Long Walk by Stephen King, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but this is this book is called The Long Walk 
and it predates the Stephen King book, and it's the it's the autobiography of a Polish guy who um, escaped from a gulag during World War II and walked all the way to India. Oh my God! From Northern Siberia, and it was adapted into a movie called The Way Back. I've heard of that of, movie. Yeah, a couple of years ago. But the but the problem was that the the climax of the book was that this guy, this Polish guy, and the few ragtag survivors of this long walk, which took them all the way across Siberia, all the way across Mongolia, all the way across the Gobi Desert, and all the way across the uh, Himalayas. The climax of this book, and I hate to ruin this for everybody, but is that they see some yetis oh. high up, high up in the Himalayas, and they just you know they describe a, a whole experience. Now they're they are um, by that point totally hallucinating, probably. Right, but right. they spend all afternoon watching these yetis cavorting in the in the high Himalayas. And, you know, you're reading this book and you're very invested in the story and it all seems completely plausible. And we know for the most part that it's true unless he's just insane and has written an entire autobiography about a thing that didn't happen. Um, and so you get to this point in the book and you're like, oh my God, like it seems like every everything else in this book was just a reporting of like, and then we made fish hooks out of our teeth and <laughs> and then we and then our friend died in the Gobi Desert and then our other friend died and and then at the very end of the book it's like, oh, and then also we saw these yetis. And you go, fuck, that's a pretty good eyewitness account, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. if you believe anything else in this book. But the problem is when they made the movie The Way Back, they like really reproduced the book in pretty excruciating detail. Like very, a lot of the scenes, it's very, very close to the book. And the whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, this is amazing. I can't wait until the end. And then they just leave that one part out of the book. That's what seems odd. Well, yeah, it's, it seemed like the whole, it was the whole, the whole book turned on it. Kind of, it was just like, you're kidding me. Did the people making this movie feel like, well, this whole this whole account is believable except that last part, right? Like that would make the movie phenomenal. I mean, that's like <laughs> putting a putting a scene in a in a movie where it's just like the main character dies at the end. Uh, you know, like any one of those adventures, like the, like uh, Spectre. If James Bond had just died in it, that would be fantastic, right? But uh, but no one ever does that, and here these guys just whitewashed this experience. So anyway, do I think that there is Bigfoot snow? But do I believe that there are Bigfoot? Sure. So you think? Okay. So yes, I'll put you da- down as a why. Well, no, no. I think you put me down as a no, but then maybe there are some Yetis up in the Himalayas. Who knows? Okay. Loch Ness Monster. Uh, no, I think that they have done quite a bit of work searching for the Loch Ness Monster. And I've flown over Loch Ness. And it is, the lake itself is perceivable. And I just, I feel like that was another thing in the 70s that we just spent 
so much time thinking and talking about the Loch Ness Monster. So much so that people used a lot of money to build submarines and right. sonar and stuff to search this lock. And, you know, nobody ever found anything. The Bermuda Triangle is some kind of an apex for either extraterrestrial or uh, incredible, you know, magnetic forces or some kind of un- unknown forces that are is responsible in a supernatural or extraterrestrial way to, of taking the planes uh, away. I feel like there's. I feel like that is a very volatile region from a weather standpoint. And even that stuff where it's like, it was a perfectly clear day. It's just in that zone of, of weather anomaly. Enough. So a, a natural explainable explanation, but there, I, is, there is something there. Well, I feel like there's, I feel like all that stuff where that, where the flight of World War II fighter planes, you know, just got lost out there. That's pretty weird. You know, a bunch of Navy pilots. But then, again, like every once in a while, an entire flight of Blue Angels or or uh, some, you know, fly, flying troop will just fly themselves into a mountain because only the first guy is doing the steering. Yeah. And the rest of them are just following his wingtips. And so there's a pretty famous event where the Blue Angels or the or the... U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds just flew into a mountainside, a whole group of them, because they were following one guy and he did it, he did it wrong. So I feel like that Navy flight, you know, the the lead guy could have gotten disoriented, could have had a minor stroke, or could have just you know blew it, right? And the rest of the guys just followed him until it was too late. That seems plausible so nothing to do with supernatural extraterrestrial just human human problems i believe okay uh fluoride is a means of government control clearly no clearly well sure fluoride is just a it's just a thing it's just a it's not an element really but is it an element i I mean fluoride is a naturally occurring thing and it and Fluoridation I, I, of water, though. I don't see how. I don't see how any. No one has made the connection between ingesting fluoride and being under control or mm. losing your auton- losing your autonomous action. Mm-hmm. So, I don't see how that. I, I don't think that the, any case has been made. It just feels like chemtrails. It's something that people don't understand, and I think it is provable that fluoride in the water does. M- control tooth decay <laughs> which is the the explanation that is offered for it right but i don't see how having extra fluoride in our water in our mouths in our tummies makes us more susceptible i am not currently under government control as far as i can tell but that would be how they get you well but i don't see how they i don't see how they would use that to get me okay if they were putting saltpeter in the water yes if they were putting radium in the water, uh-huh. that would seem to be like, really, you guys, radium? But fluoride, it's just, I don't, I don't see the connection. Okay, put you down for no. Uh, Princess Diana's death was not an accident. 
Hmm. Oh, you're talking about like a government conspiracy to eliminate her in order for the royal family to something, something, something. Yes. No, I think that Princess Diana's wreck was caused by a drunk chauffeur okay. hauling ass through a pretty narrow tunnel and trying to either avoid or collide with paparazzi on motorcycles, which is the explanation offered. I mean, maybe that, you know, maybe something happened in that tunnel that we don't fully know because three of the principals are dead. So right. maybe one of those paparazzi did something really bad that they're never going to admit to. But that's the extent of it. The 1969 moon landing was a hoax. <laughs> no, I believe that it is a singular human achievement. What could possibly be gained from hoaxing that? What do they, what for money or for what this put us again, ahead of the, the, of, of the Russians? Uh, I mean, bring that, bring together United society in here in America and no rally. No, 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 no. The, I mean, the people in charge of the government who would be orchestrating a massive conspiracy like that are too stupid. Like, we know how stupid they are. George Bush is measurably stupid. Gerald Ford, also measurably stupid. Nixon, hmm. completely consumed by his own paranoia and, like, pretty small machinations. For, for them to orchestrate the moon landing to do something as, as intangible as shame the Russians, right? When an arms race, an arms race with the Russians was just making everybody rich. Like to shame them into a posture where they just roll over, show their white underbellies, and say, "We surrender. You made it to the moon first, and so we, so our system of government is bunk, and we are your, you know, we're your vassals now." It didn't happen, first of all, and because it's illogical. And any other motivation to go through that whole rigmarole to accomplish just a duping of people? It's like, what? The, the, the expenditure of energy and effort and money to accomplish that hoax would have to have a correspondingly large benefit, which it clearly does not, or did not, does not. In 1947, a UFO crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. I believe that is plausible. I think that UFOs are plausible. Mm -hmm. I think it is plausible that they are invisible to us. I think it's plausible that they crash periodically. I mean... If they are capable of visiting Earth and being largely invisible to us, I feel like they would also avoid crashing. Mm -hmm. Or if they, but if crash, something could go wrong with the Blue Angels, I mean, maybe they had a problem too. I feel like if they, I don't think that they come like solo. Like here's just a guy like <laughs> in his little ship. I think that they. If they are here, they have come as part of a armada. And if one guy in the mm. desert 
that they would make certain that he's not discovered because it's not like the thing crashed in the desert on top of a campsite. Like right. it was alone out there long enough that people could have come and there are that their, that their fellows would have evaporated them. So now that I'm thinking it through, no, I don't think that that happened. What if I'm just going to throw this out? What if that was intentional as right. a way to, even we, because the aliens were smart enough to know that we would cover it up, that they intentionally crashed one out there so that we would find it, so that we would cover it up, knowing that by projecting forward in a way that aliens would be able to do from watching our history, that this would be a way to kind of get it into culture so that we could slowly, slowly come to terms with aliens in a way that, that would be reasonable. I do believe that explanation is plausible. Okay. The other day I was at the, uh, at the Costco and there were some sort of, do you remember uh, the, the little Barbie? It wasn't little. It was the biggest of all the Barbies. It was a head and shoulders of a Barbie where you could comb her hair and style <laughs> yes, her hair. Yes, vividly remember that. Yes. Remember it, that? And it, it was like a bust. It was like a bust of Barbie. <laughs> And it, it wasn't fully life-size. It was like three-quarters scale. But you could, you, could, you could pet her and you could do her makeup and you could yes. monkey around with little head and shoulders Barbie. Right. Well, the other day I was at the Costco and they have made head and shoulders Barbie again. But in addition to head and shoulders Barbie, they've also made head and shoulders Elsa. Oh. From Frozen. Right. And when you see Elsa and Barbie, both sort of three-quarters human scale, sitting next to one another, you realize how exaggeratedly alien-like Elsa's features are. And it's kind of startling and scary. Because you see Elsa by herself, and you're like, yeah, that's some anime-looking you know, weird, creepy, contemporary animation. It's not clear why they're doing that, but there's so much, you know, like those Bratz dolls. Do you remember those Bratz dolls? Yes. That were just like, hey, here's some dolls that are little sluts or whatever. <laughs> not to slut shame the Bratz dolls, but no. like, they were pretty gross. Yeah, I think they're still around. And they had big, big eyes and weird small chins. Right. But, but seeing this Elsa bust next to the Barbie bust, I was like, if the UFOs were intentionally doing this, right. And intentionally like slowly introducing this, this notion. Right. And part of that was like, no, no, no children. These faces, which are sort of heart shaped with pointy chins mm -hmm. and giant eyes. Mm -hmm. These faces are normal. They are beautiful. Right. They're part of, of something we see every day. Yeah. Come along. Come along. And I, I think more than like letting us, I mean, I think if they crashed at Roswell intentionally, more than um, introducing the idea as part of a gradual process, it also is a, it's a perfect way to sort of gain a modicum of control. Because now the government has a secret, and now UFOs 
can leverage that secret to a certain extent. Like we, you know, you, you people have special knowledge, but again, it, it comes up against that problem of like, it would require so many people to be in on the secret that as soon as more than five people know a thing, it's, it's very hard to keep it a secret. And if 500 or 1500 or 5,000 air force employees and area 51 people and presidents and so forth, all these people knew it would just be so hard to, to maintain it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just feel like the jury's out. I do. I do imagine. I love to, to picture this, like we're just gradually infiltrating your consciousness Mm -hmm. and one day and we're, and it's happening through Hollywood and, you know, aliens were so scary in 50s and 60s movies. And again, the 70s, right? The Project Blue Book television show. Right. It ended every week with spooky spooks. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was sort of the first one where it was introduced the idea that, uh, that aliens might be friendly predisposed to help us not maybe the first time in science fiction certainly that was explored but like the first widespread mainstream friendly ufo although i guess the original sort of the day the earth stood still there was some sense that that was a friendly alien it was just that the robot was programmed to protect him and we fucked it up so bad with our army response to it that it became warlike. So maybe it's all, maybe friendly aliens have always been in the culture more. Think about it. But, but, but in the eighties, suddenly they became cute, right? (laughs) ET, right? ET and Alf. Like, Oh, these are, (laughs) these are cute UFOs. And now, you know, it's just like Elsa. She's so beautiful. Right. It's creepy. All right, keep going. Okay. I mean, are you enjoying this segment or? I guess, sure. <laughs> I mean, I can stop. I could save some more for, for another how, time. How many of these do you have? Oh, I got a lot. Okay. Well, uh, let's save some for another episode. All right. And then, uh, I mean, because we haven't gotten a viewer mail. We haven't gotten, you know, I received, I received a package in the mail that I haven't opened oh, yet. Oh, we've got to do that. Let's do Is that. Good? All right. So here, I got a little bag. The bag is from Canada. It's from uh, Lindsay Nolan in Canada. Oh, my goodness. She she or he, it's unclear. Lindsay is one of those uh, names. She, he, or or uh, the uh, transgender pronoun, which escapes me right now. I think you should say they. They. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They, Lindsay, they, uh, is from Whitehorse, Yukon Territories, which is an exciting place. I've been there several times, and I like it. There very much. White horse, strange place. Uh, and then inside the package, it says ball cap postcard. <laughs> and I imagine that that is some kind of customs thing where they had to declare what it is. But that's given us a little, it's a little, a little foreshadow. Yeah, a little hint. Ball cap postcard. All right, here we go. It's a soft package from Canada. Yukon Territories, special area. Far north. Okay, here we go. Opening the bubble wrap package. And inside, there is a postcard. 
It says, such great news about the coach, meaning the GMC RV. Yes. A suggestion that I drive it to Alaska and stop in Whitehorse. They're offering me free parking. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. With a caveat, free parking at the Walmart. <laughs> Thanks. Oh no, no, no. Or at Hidden Driveway at Cabin, at a uh, at a uh, at a a Springs. I'm not going to specify. Uh, I'm indebted to you and Merlin and Dan for so many years of entertainment. And then the cap. Oh, it says that if I wear this cap in Whitehorse, I will avoid parking tickets. Uh, it is. <laughs> Absolutely the brightest <laughs> How, color. Wait a minute. How do they know if you're wearing the cap? Is it is this a superstitious thing? or no, no, no. Because no. you're not by this, your car when they're writing the ticket. This is a safety. This is some kind of official white horse uh, like cap that would be used by a, a city employee. It says white horse, the wilderness city. <laughs> Seems a little bit like a contradiction in terms. And it has, it is, it is flame orange. Um, and it has a, a piece of reflective, you know, sewn on reflective stripe around the entire back. And, um, and then on the cap above Whitehorse, the wilderness city is a riverboat, like a, pa- a, a, a stern paddle wheel steamer which I can only guess is the logo of Whitehorse because Whitehorse, of course, is situated on the Yukon River, which is a river that goes all the way through Alaska and a river which up in the Canada portion is navigated by actual steamboats. Ye old-fashioned steamboats. Right. So uh, that is a beautiful hat. And when I wear it, it will be, well, first of all, I'll be safe from hunters. And now I know that if I go to Whitehorse anytime soon, I will be, I'll remember to take this hat and I will be, uh, I'll be safe from parking tickets. Is it, when you say hat, I'm assuming it's like a baseball cap style and it has, does it have the mesh sort of in the back or is it cloth all the way around? Is it structured? Is it? It's uh, cloth all the way around. It has sort of a, you know, because it's embroidered in the front, it's a little bit stiffer in the front. And then it has, I'm sorry to say, that modern sort of Velcro. Right. Back, yeah. Which is, you know, not as good as the, um, the sort of dots. Do you like the dots or do you I, like the leather belt belt loop? No, the leather belt loop is garbage too. No, I like the dots. I like the dots too. Um, Velcro couldn't hold up though. Yeah. But I just, just anytime Velcro is on a, is on a garment, I just kind of feel like, it's not not good, but, but that's why you city, like the Filson so much because they they reject that. Yeah, they do. They reject that, and you know when when ski coats went from having button or like snap wrist closures, mm-hmm. or the best, of course, is like is like uh, elastic wool sleeve ends, but like the Gore Texy ones often just had a snap enclosure but at a certain point somewhere in the 90s it switched over to velcro and i was just like Bluck. no thanks i don't know why that is i, mean, I think it's, it's perfect- got to be cheaper much 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 cheaper 
and the workmanship, it, the difference between like heat gluing Velcro onto something versus working with a leather or baking a snap that's going to attach into the fabric. It seems easier to just hot glue something on there. It's just easier to hot glue it. And because people have no taste, I'm sure the majority of people are like, wow, thank God they finally got Velcro on those things. So I don't have to <laughs> think about those, putting those little, you know, little plastic dots inside those little holes. It's like, you guys are idiots. Uh, so that's good. Now let's try. Uh, that's a, that is an excellent. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to talk about the postcard. The postcard is of an old, it's an old fashioned postcard. And it's an old car, which to my eye seems like a Chevrolet from the 1930s. And it's a Canadian model of a Chevrolet, I'm betting. It's just slightly different than a normal Chevy, which indicates to me it was made in Windsor, Canada, just by its look. And it's pulling behind it what seems to be a handmade camper trailer oh. RV type of thing. This sounds really your kind of thing. It's a very nice picture. And I'm, and so I'm imagining, you know, these people traveling the like Alaska highway when it was still a, a rutted mud road Yeah, in this old fashioned wire wheeled thirties Chevy with a, with a homemade trailer behind it. I just think that that's wonderful. All right, viewer mail. Viewer mail. Viewer mail should have a theme of some kind. I love that. Hey, Dan and John, my name is Harry, and I'm an 18-year-old from New York City. I was wow. Yeah. I was wondering if you guys could talk about your relationships to success, how you define it, whether you each would consider yourself successful, and so forth. Kind of mm. ties nicely into your comment earlier and, and uh, you know, previously that you're, you know, you're a working working uh, artist. He said, he continues and he says, I have many aspirations for things I'd like to achieve though. I acknowledge those very well may change or not be met. I think it's healthy to set goals for oneself, but I worry about defining success for myself as meeting these goals. Mm -hmm. I worry that it's unhealthy to validate the time spent achieving a goal only through the completion of the goal. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about the topic of defining success for oneself. Thank you, Harry. I love that he's 18 years old and named Harry. Yeah. That's just like a great name. And his parents. Smart parents. They, yeah. They, they chose not to name him Aloysius or, <laughs> or you know, something pretentious. They yes. just went with Harry, which is great. Dan, do you consider yourself successful? That is, you know, it's funny because you're supposed to go with your first answer, right? Yeah. No, okay. I don't. You don't? No. And why do you think you don't? Uh, because I feel like there is still so much that I would like to accomplish and I have only barely scratched the surface of that. Uh, and, and that's answering a, in a professional capacity, not a personal capacity, uh, not as a whole life picture uh, as uh, my answer is more on the 
professional side. Right. You're not ready to die yet. Your work is incomplete. Right. But you have made a career for yourself in a, in a, um, in a way that was unforeseeable when you were not only in high school, but even as an adult, like you are an early adopter of a new technology. You Mm -hmm. have made a, uh, you have made a career in the creative field of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. I don't even feel like I'm, I'm not even 1% on the path that I would like to, uh, on the level of success that I would like to achieve. All right. Now, barely, barely, barely scratching the surface of what I feel I could do, what my potential is. And, uh, and I feel that I'm so far behind and so late getting here that it almost washes away any degree of success I might have. Wow. I'm a very, uh, driven person. And I feel like most of the things that I've done until now have been what I would deem immense failures. Uh-huh. Uh, so no, I would not consider myself successful professionally. I will add to that, that if I were to measure myself based on other, on, on people I consider to be my peers, yeah, that is people who I went to high school or college with, or people I knew early in my career, if you were to, to measure what I have accomplished against what they have accomplished not on a level of personal satisfaction, but simply on like what you're saying, like I have started a, a business. The business has been profitable. I have employees, uh, people outside of my immediate family know who I am by all of these measures. uh, Yes, I am successful. And you might say measuring these other people, if those are measures of success, I am more successful than many people. I still don't feel even a slight amount of satisfaction in that degree of success. I'm thinking much bigger and maybe we'll never achieve those things and we'll never feel successful. And perhaps that is why I try as hard as I do every single day to do something better. Hmm. That's my short answer. What about personally? Uh, On a personal level, like as a, as a, um, you know, a, a member of a family with a with a wife and kids and a house that's in a nice area, as we've talked about, and things full like of tarantulas. Yes, but, full but yeah, of tarantulas. Yes. Uh, in that sense, I feel very successful. Um, I I think I'm, uh, you know, I try every day to be a good parent and to make good parenting decisions and to take care of, you know, my my kids as best as I can, and I I would. I think that I'm a very successful parent and on a personal level, I, I think I have a lot of you know, room to improve, of course, but I, I feel like on that level, I'm more successful, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't feel like I'm there yet. Right. If that makes any sense. No, it absolutely does. Uh, uh, for my own, in my own case, I feel like I am uh, hampered by precisely the thing that Harry, uh, but I'm sorry, by the opposite of precisely the thing that Harry feels hampered by. He feels hampered by the fact that he has set these meetable goals. Right. And he's worried that he's going to achieve those goals and then feel success. Like, should he be setting bigger goals? Is that what you're, yeah. Right. That's what I think, that's what he's saying. Or, Or rather, like, 
not set goals and pursue sort of as you're doing pursue this uh this thing uh this unknowable unattainable thing and that that would be that would be more propulsive than setting goals and meeting them but i feel like i am not did, what, what was the word happy uh su- oh success success i do not feel like a success because uh precisely that i do not have goals and have never had goals um are goals bad no 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 i think they're essential i was i was raised um and particularly my father but also to, in a different way my mother both felt like i was destined for greatness and my dad actually probably used the word greatness, but he certainly instilled in me a sense that if I were to become a U.S. senator, that would be simply fulfilling oh, my potential. You would meet it and not exceed it. I would meet my potential at being a U.S. senator. <laughs> to become a legendary U.S. senator oh. would be you know, sort of like still within the realm of like, yeah, go for it. That's, that's, that is in your sort of potential range. And then to, to be a legendary Senator, also a best-selling novelist and also a legendary playwright and an EGOT maybe would satisfy my dad's boundless uh, aspirations for me. My mom was subtler but still encouraged in me a sense that anything was possible. And so from the earliest memory, I felt like my goals were greatness. Right. And how do you fucking achieve greatness or even measure it? Um, So I had no measurable goal. So no metric of success, I could not ever say I was a success here. If I got, if I got straight A's in school, it didn't feel like success. And if I got like D's in school, it kind of almost felt like more of a success just Mm. because it was like, in spite of my potential for greatness, I have, uh, I have spectacularly failed. And so the problem is now I'm in middle age, still without any concrete goals, uh, maybe even afraid of goals, and still haunted by this feeling that only greatness is um, acceptable. And yet, you know, obviously, like, what greatness? What is greatness? And so I think that the idea of setting goals, meeting them, feeling a sense of achievement, and then setting new goals and meeting those and feeling that sense of satisfaction is precisely the way to feel like a success. My mom feels like a success right? because uh, she uses the comparison model and every single other person from her high school, uh, every, right, other girl, right, every right. other girl from her high school married a farmer <laughs> and still lives in Van Wert, Ohio. Right. And see so, that I would I would see it's interesting to me because a big part of what I I can I can we talk about holding two different concepts in our mind and believing in both 
I see successes measured in two different ways. One is, I mean, are you, are you happy? And if you're happy, then you're successful. And that's how I measure it on a personal level. You know what I mean? It's like on a personal level, I'm successful because I'm happy in that space on a professional level. I think it's much easier to say, to sort of set goals in many cases, financial goals or, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're able to do that comparison model, I think the comparison model might work for me. It it works better on that level. Then you'd say, well, am I competing with other people? No, I'm not. I don't see myself in, in competing that way. So because I don't feel like that, I can kind of throw away that comparison model. I don't use the comparison model. And my wife will, will often say like, you should be proud of these things that you've, you know, you've done. Or my mom will say, I'm very proud of you. You've done this and the other thing. I'm like, I'm not even close to the stuff that I want to get done. And I'm, I'm already like running out of time. Yeah. I don't have, uh, I do not have, I, you know, my, my, a lot of my high school friends were very successful, uh, measured by the sort of middle-class aspirations formed in high school to be a lawyer or a doctor to be a successful lawyer or doctor to, you know, have a house and kids and, and be successful. Like, like we imagined. I mean, I remember when, I remember when somebody, one of my friend's parents made $50,000 a year and I was like, wow, $50,000 a year. That's incredible. And they were a doctor. And then, you know, at one point, one of my parents made $50,000 a year and it was like, holy shit, we're there. $50,000 $50,000 a year, where would you find, where would you spend it all? And so a lot of my friends, but I never was like them. And I, I, I don't look at them and say like, oh, I, I measure my own success or failure against them. It's always been against, you know, John F. Kennedy. My success or failure has always been measured against Einstein. It's just like, what the, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. What am I supposed to do with that? So, but, you uh, know, I, I just want to say, I think it's interesting that an 18 year old is thinking about success and measuring success. I, I feel like maybe he's, you know, like for me, this, this plan, if I even have a plan or goals that I have, they're broken down into tiny, tiny little goals to get up to the big one, right? So you don't just say, I want to be president of the United States. Like, you don't, and oh, I'm working toward it. No, you, you, you start out by saying, I'm going to be like president of my school class first, right? And then you like have these, these milestones that you do that you may have that as a long-term goal, right? And maybe that's a bad example, but like you, you work toward these individual things because along the way, at least it was true for me, I found that that thing that I thought I wanted wasn't really what I wanted. And so then you've got to like reevaluate everything and say, hmm, maybe that's not the direction that I really want to go in. And maybe that goal that I had wasn't even the right goal to have. But you're yeah, kind I, of, you're I, kind of free of that without goals. I would think I, I've had that. No, 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 I don't think so. I mean, I've, I've had minor goals like that. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be Kelly Kiefer's boyfriend and I achieved that. <laughs> I wanted to work at catch 22 and I achieved it. 
I wanted to have a band that was at the top. I mean, I didn't even know that I had this goal until I achieved it. I wanted to be a number one on the local Seattle charts. Mm. And I achieved it and was there for weeks and weeks. And I was like, wow, it doesn't get any better than this. But then, you know, you open up that door and you're like, oh, it definitely gets better than this. The number one on the Seattle charts. Uh, that's that's you can't even get arrested in Boise, Idaho, being number one on the Seattle <laughs> charts, let alone be like uh, popular. So, but those were you know those were just those were minor, intermediary, interstitial goals. I mean, people congratulate. I've been I haven't had a drink or any drugs in twenty years, and people congratulate me for it. Like congratulations. I'm like, I guess. I mean, it's, uh, it is, I adopted it as a lifestyle and it is, and it continues to be one. It feels less like an accomplishment than simply a, um, than just a methodology. And so all of that stuff where people are like, wow, good job about, you know, not drinking. It's like, Okay, fine. Thanks. I mean, I do feel like uh, I'm proud of my kid. Yeah. But to the degree that that's my, I mean, there are certain things that I can look at and say, if it weren't for me, she would not be this, this way. Right. You're, you're a successful parent. I, I, feel, I feel that I am. Yeah. But I also feel like that's not that hard to do. But I'd actually, I think it really is. I think it well, really is. Well, I mean, is. there are just so many. <laughs> I mean, there are billions of parents. And so to be successful is still to be within a category of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. So. Um, but it's, it's so easy to not be. It's so easy to not be, but it's still like there are, there are people all around the world who are succeeding at it. And. Is there Maybe. something like about exclusivity that that's connected to well, success? It's connected to greatness. Yeah. Right. To be the best parent. Right. I mean, the best. I mean, what, what's amazing about somebody that achieves an Olympic record in running is that there are 6 billion people on the earth or more now. And this person has achieved this measured, I mean, there might be someone in, uh, in Ethiopia or someone in China for that matter, that is able to run a mile faster than the, the greatest Olympian. Right. But, and we just don't know, but as far as like the people that have put themselves forward to be measured, you're one in 6 billion. Right. Who can run that fast. That, or, you it's know, pretty remarkable. Even, yeah, even even taking into account all the people that are, you know, that are capable of those speeds that didn't make it to the Olympics. What is that? You're in that you're in a group of two hundred people in in the entire world. So that is that's pretty cool. But whatever it is that I'm good at, I don't think that it will ever be measurable. To the you know to a degree that people will lift me up on their shoulders and say he is the greatest bullshit artist in history <laughs> or whatever it is you know 
And I think that was one of the things that was surprising and discouraging about the history of the long winters was that I finally put something out there like, here it is, everyone. And it didn't, you know, it did that thing that I've described before where I had 30,000 people bought my record, 30,000 people voted for me in the Seattle election, 30,000 people listened, I guess, probably to my podcasts all combined. 30,000 people is, um, is the level is my level of, of influence. And I was, I was surprised and shocked to discover that because I thought when I put out my record, it will, I didn't have a goal to sell a million records, but right. I just sort of felt like that that's the measure of success. Yeah. I made this beautiful thing. I think it's beautiful. Here you go world. And the world was like, yeah, thanks. I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> that that is not the um that seems a little anticlimactic. <laughs>